Good morning. Good morning. Oh, wow. I sound like a frog already. Hang on. You probably heard that. Hi. I heard that. I'm learning my volume for a second. I'm so used to now using Zoom. I'm so sorry um, that I've forgotten how to use Skype. And uh, I prefer Skype, actually. Yeah, why is that? It feels familiar. And I like all the memories I have with Skype. Oh, sure, sure. Do you, have you used Zoom? I'm sure you have, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I teach my RV classes, Lauren, over Zoom. So I've had to become a Zoom expert, including how to use breakout rooms so people can work together. Yeah, so you can do a lot more with it, I'm sure. But Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with the simplicity of Skype. And, you know, good old phones are good, too, because it's just not, you know, you can focus more on the interview and less on the buttons. Right. And all the options. It's a, it's a downside of having too many you know, choices is you might spend a lot of time like people do in Zoom calls trying to figure out, okay, how do I share my screen? You know, it it kind of interferes with the flow a little bit, I think, because it's technologically complex, but it works if you need Right. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's, it's amazing how many things that we can do now with Zoom. And what I'm struggling with right now is I wanted an old school, old styled, old fashioned podcast. And yeah. they seem to be becoming a thing of the past where most people have switched to video. Right. And I don't want to do video. I, no. I I like listening to podcasts. I like listening yeah. to interviews. Yeah. And online radio shows that have been archived while I'm doing other things. Of course. No, that's the way it's going, Laura. It's going back to audio. It's people going are, back to audio? Really? Oh, yeah. It's, people are video. This is what I'm hearing and reading about all the time is people are videoed out. And there's only so much time you could spend looking at a screen. Looking at a screen. That's and what I don't want to do. And audio is more portable. And, and yes. you can listen in your car. Then you could unplug your MP3 player. I still use pluggable and unpluggable audio players. I have uh, my yeah, I have my old iPod and I have right, me too. a, a me Bose too. sound dock. Right. Uh, you could carry it around. Yes. So audio is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And podcasts without video is the way to go. It takes less bandwidth. A lot of you know, it's just easier for people to listen. You're gonna get ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the information with audio without any video. You don't need the video for the most part unless you're showing graphics. So I wouldn't go the video route if you don't need to. I just do it because I like to show pictures and things on my YouTube channel. But I have a podcast that I've started, too. Uh, it isn't separate from YouTube, but it will be soon. Okay. And I use something called Podbean, mm-hmm. uh, yep. which is free. Up to, oh, you'd say you know them. Yeah, so that after I, I ran out of five hours of free space, so and I pay them, I think, 14 a month or something. And that's pretty good because it syndicates to Apple and everything, Apple mm-hmm. Podcasts. And uh, uh, that's the really the way to go is something like that that syndicates to all the podcast streams. Yeah. People can sign up. Yeah. So that, no, no, stick with the audio. Well, you're the first person I've heard say that. And I'm, I'm excited to oh, hear, yeah, yeah to, to hear the way you put it because I was afraid that 
this podcast, speaking of Jung, was just going to kind of fizzle out because I'm yeah. not I'm not going to do video. I don't want to do video. There's no reason to do it uh, because I am not showing uh, charts or graphics. And I love, like you said, the portability of uh, listening to an audio interview. While you're doing other things. Yeah. Exactly that, right. There's no way to... Uh, uh, there's no way to just keep staring at a screen all day. No one's going to do that. And I think that I absorb the information better. Like when you're in that state where you're in, I'm sorry, but when you're in the shower or when you're yeah, wherever. washing dishes or driving, right? I don't it's drive, fine. but yeah. To get information that way. Listen to conversation. I totally agree. Yep. So this is interesting because you and I have not been in touch since 2003. Right. And I wasn't even sure if you remembered me. I know that you teach thousands of people. Of course so. I did remember you. Well, I was thinking, yeah, why, I, why would you remember me? Because you were in the class and, you know, I go to the UK and your name is London. And Ah, right. I, okay. I could, you were in one of the classes back about 20 years ago. And uh, am I right? Yeah. Well, I found... The I used to keep a day planner on my desk next to my computer, and now everything um, I do is digital, so I don't buy these anymore, but I saved all of them. And this is my daily planetary guide for 2003, and I found it yesterday. I took photos of it, and I put, in, I put them in my Instagram stories because I opened it. I thought, okay, when did I see Dr. Hine? And when did I go to Boulder? And it was mm -hmm. in March of 2003. I flew to Denver on right. Thursday the 6th. And then the mm -hmm. class started on Friday the 7th. Yeah. And the 8th and the 9th. And looks like I flew home on Tuesday the 11th. So what I wanted to mention, too, is that and I didn't remember this. I turned the page a couple times and I saw that I had written down. I used to write everything down. I really wish I would start doing that again. I wrote down on that same month that I took your course on Tuesday, the 25th, I wrote the idea came for Victorian Gate. And I just want to take a moment here to share this story because your course was the first formal remote viewing course I took after being mm -hmm. interested in it for years and years and years because I listened to Coast to Coast AM, which is a radio show that you've been on many times. Mm -hmm. And I started listening to that show when Art Bell was the host back in the yeah, yeah the early to mid 1990s. And he would have on uh well actually it had to have been after 95 because that's when remote viewing became declassified. And he had a lot of the original government remote viewers on as guests. And I became very interested in it. So it wasn't until 2003 that I took a course and it was with you um, because I heard you on coast. And right. I actually have that in here too. It was in February. I wrote that in this day planner um, that you were on Coast to Coast AM on <laughs> Wednesday, February 5th. I wrote Simeon Hine on C2C. So why this is important is because at the time, I'll just try to keep this brief, I was living in a house in Columbus, Ohio, and it was not a good situation um, for me, just as far as the environment. And I wanted to get out of that neighborhood. I lived in a big house. It was a 
big, beautiful, new, brand new construction in a new neighborhood. But I'm tr- I don't want to get into too many details. It was just not a good environment for me to be in. And I was mm-hmm. there for many years and I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know, okay, if I don't live here, where am I going to live? And how am I going to make that transition? Well, this is without even thinking of it. I don't remember what happened, but it was that same month after I got back from Boulder that that I wrote in this day planner, the idea came for Victorian Gate, which is where I moved to. I moved from a big house in the suburbs to a townhouse in the middle of the city. I mean, Columbus is not that big of a city, but I moved downtown and it was a jumping off point to where I live now in the city of Chicago. So something opened up for me where I think what happened was I could see it. And it it took place in just a couple months that I moved out of this house and sold the house and moved into this townhouse in the city, which was a much healthier environment for me to be in. So I bring that up because this this world that you opened up to me um, wasn't just the course I took with you, but you wrote a book called Opening Minds. And you also, and I'm going to read the intro, I'm still going to do that. Um, You play music. And I so I bought your a great thing about Amazon, uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, when you log in, and you look at a book or anything, it will tell you, um, when you purchased it. So when I go to Amazon and I type in Opening Minds by Simeon Hine, it shows me that I purchased that book in February of 2003 and also mm-hmm. your CD, um, Opening Skies. Oh, yeah, that one, yeah. And so it did open up a whole new world for me. And I'm going to stop, well, I'm, I can't stop talking now because I want to read the intro. And this is a quarantine edition, so it's a lot less formal, which people seem to like um, this more laid back format, but I do want to tell the audience who you are. So I'm going to read the standard intro that I read for every episode. Sure. Go for it. I'm Laura London, and this is the final quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Everything Jung wrote was based on an experience. Jungian psychology isn't about ideas. It's about experiences. This quarantine series is based on my personal experiences with interesting people. Joining us for the 21st edition in this series is sociologist, author, and guitarist Dr. Simeon Hine in Boulder, Colorado. He holds a master's degree in sociology from the University of Arizona and later went on to earn a doctorate from Washington State University. His dissertation focused on the role of technology in social and economic change, specifically how technology can destroy information and interfere with natural evolutionary processes. After working as an assistant professor of statistics, Dr. Hine now runs the Institute for Resonance, where he provides training in remote viewing, or what he calls resonance sensing, and other subtle energy skills. He is the CEO of Mount Baldy Press, a niche publishing company focusing on new science and the development of planetary intelligence. Dr. Hine also studies crop circles and for many years has led people on guided tours. 
He has participated in more than 300 radio and television interviews and was featured on the History Channel show In Search Of, Season 2, Episode 7, on the topic of UFOs and crop circles. An avid acoustic guitarist, his CDs include Earth Dreaming, Opening Skies, and Night on Mount Graham. You can hear how he perceives the world through music in his mini-concert on YouTube. He is the author of three books. They are Opening Minds, A Journey of Extraordinary Encounters, Crop Circles, and Resonance. Planetary Intelligence, 101 Easy Steps to Energy, Well-Being, and Natural Insight. And Black Swan Ghosts, A Sociologist Encounters Witnesses to Unexplained Aerial Craft, Their Occupants, and Other Elements of the Multiverse. This weekend, Dr. Hine will be presenting at the annual Contact in the Desert Conference, which will take place online. His workshop, Expand Your Senses with Remote Viewing, will be held on Friday, June 25th, from 1.15 to 2.45 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And his lecture, Do UFOs and ETs Come from Parallel Earth Realities? A review of the latest scientific ideas and evidence will be presented on Saturday, June 26th, from 3 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Along with host Steve Marillo and speakers Caroline Corey, Alan Steinfeld, Dr. Jeffrey Long, and Stephen A. Schwartz, Dr. Hine will also be participating in the panel Conversations with Third Eye Spies, The Secret History and Application of Remote Viewing, on Sunday, June 27th, from 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021 through the magic of Skype. We like Skype. So I'm going to let you talk now. I've done a lot of talking and um, I was going over, here I go talking again. I was going over all of your work in preparing for this episode. And I really enjoyed preparing for it because it reminded me of so many things that I've gotten away from. So since I saw you in 2003, you've published two more books. Mm -hmm. And your latest one is called Black Swan Ghosts. And again, before I stop talking, I just want to mention one more thing. The title of that book is taken from uh, Dr. Nassim Tlaib's book, The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable. And what's interesting, uh, Simeon, is that that book was mentioned by Jungian analyst Dr. Murray Stein in episode 54 of this podcast, which Mm -hmm. uh, we did about the BTS song Ego. It was recorded in February of 2020, just as the pandemic was starting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Dr. Stein mentioned it uh, because of the BTS song Black Swan and because he was seeing the pandemic as a Black Swan event. Right. So maybe we can start with your book called Black Swan Ghosts. Right. So, well, thanks for having me here today. Yeah. And uh, thanks for mentioning all my work in that nice historical recap. <laughs> it gave me a little perspective, thinking, how could this one guy do all that stuff? That's and that's I'm just, and there's more, there's more, because you have a blog, you have a few blogs, you yeah. offer courses online, uh, 
your guitar music is online. Yeah. And I'm sure there's things I don't even know about. Yeah, I, actually, the most surprising thing, Laura, was I got I get these royalty checks recently from a Bob Dylan movie and, and Joni Mitchell, the what? birthday celebration. They use some of those songs from Opening Skies. Oh, great. In their production somewhere, it was the Rolling Thunder Review by Martin Scorsese. That's the name uh, of the movie? It's Bob Dylan's tour with Joan Baez, and they call it the Rolling Thunder Review and Martin Scorsese. There was a film producer from Holland who filmed that entire tour that Bob Dylan did of these small venues in, okay. I think it's 70, 74, 75. And he had Roger McGuinn from The Birds join him and Joni Mitchell. Other people joined them along the way, and they went across the U.S. Giving these performances at these small venues, you know, like nursing homes and all these places normally really? you don't find. Yeah. And you can, it's called the Rolling Thunder Review. And because I kind of ended up, I ended up getting a royalty check. I thought, I got to check this out. Where did they use, they used that song, Lord Franklin, which is on Opening Skies, which oh. you mentioned at the beginning. And I thought, wow. So I got the DVD, really enjoyed this early Dylan performances. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really classic with those. If you like music from the 70s yeah. and that whole scene, it's a great DVD. Uh, and it's just, it just really, they have a lot of interviews. Allen Ginsberg is in it too. He came along and it was this fascinating snapshot of history of the mid seventies when mm -hmm. I was a teenager. So it was really, I thought where I couldn't find my song. It was in there somewhere or in somewhere in their production, but it was great to be associated with the movie. And then, then I got, they used the same song somewhere at Joni Mitchell's 75th birthday in LA at one of the theaters there two years ago. And that's also a DVD where you have all Is these it? bands doing the cover songs of her best songs. And it made me really appreciate Joni Mitchell's music. Mm -hmm. I really hadn't paid attention to her songs until I got, I said, where's my song in here? You know, Lord Franklin, yeah. it, they could have just played it. It's a two day event. They could have just used it in the auditorium as, you know, somewhere in during a break. I don't know, but it was the same Canadian film production company that made both DVDs. And they just obviously liked the finger picking on Lord Franklin, which I think I did a pretty good job on that song. Cause it's a traditional song, but I did it sort of the way Pentacle and John Renborn did it. Anyway, this is an all in the side, but it's kind of cool to be connected to those artists in some indirect yeah. way. And then to listen and rediscover how they affected your music, even though you were just a teenager back then you heard their songs. Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, and it influences you, and it's really mm -hmm. kind of cool to connect with that. So <laughs> since you mentioned Opening Skies, yeah. I just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, it's great It's great to be able to do a lot of things. We are all taught to focus and be specialists, but right. I don't think that's the way nature intended us to be. Great point. Uh, nature intended us to be full-spectrum people. Mm, and full-spectrum people can do a lot of different things. You could, you could, uh, you could, be a musician and a comedian and an academic. Uh, I know Roger, you know, Brian May from the guitarist from Queen. I think he got a degree in astrophysics recently. Yeah, so, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, people do all sorts of things. Bill Bruford, who used to be the drummer for Yes, from those early songs like Roundabout and early days, and then went on to do a lot of jazz, recently just stopped drumming completely and picked up academics. He just said he... It just wasn't right for him anymore doing music. He just, you know, you change over decades and decades. Yeah. And now he preferred critical uh, writing in English. How about that? Yeah. From those wonderful, think of that song Roundabout. Everyone knows that. He's yep. the drummer. Now he's writing essays. So 
we can all do lots of things and change over time. We don't just have to stay the same. And that's, I mean, that's what the capitalist economy or socialist economy said. The economies want you to do the same thing because it works for economies, but we're more than just an economy. And we have to pay attention to meaning, you know, meaning in our lives. Yes. And that can take you to places that society didn't tell you about. And it took me to these really interesting topics, like you're mentioning, Mm -hmm. uh, to remote viewing and related phenomena to UFOs, which, you know, we're told it's the subject of the Contact in the Desert conference. And apparently some report is coming out from the Pentagon and the director of national intelligence this week in the U.S., that the Senate asked them to produce about, well, what actually are all of these objects that pilots report? And just the military pilots, and we've been seeing, and we think that you have information about this Pentagon. What do you know about this? Can you tell us? And so the Pentagon had to produce this report under threat by the inspector general, we're told, from the, the Pentagon has these inspector generals to make sure that they, you know, our money is spent well, since mm-hmm. they handle so much of it. And they said, you better comply with this Senate intelligence directive. So this information could be coming out this week. It might be delayed a little bit, but it's fascinating that, you know, things change over time, new topics show up. And I simply got interested in these topics, Laura, because they did not fit with what I learned in graduate school Mm -hmm. from statistics and everything. These topics do not fit that model at all. And I could see they were true from taking an RV class in 96, you know, at the Farsight Institute in Atlanta. And I started teaching it a couple of years later. I thought, oh, this is really cool. As you saw when you took the class. Yeah. I remember you got good results. I don't remember your target specifically, but I remember you got some good, good sessions. There. Yeah. You did. Yeah. Do you remember any of those in particular, what they were, the types of targets and your target contact? Um, I'm sorry, I don't, but I have the binder. You still. have the binder. Still. I have the binder. It, no, well, it's an astounding thing. Don't you agree to sit down with a target that's in a folder you can't see it and through this technique which we go over in the class the ingo swan crv system the written system Mm -hmm. somehow you can produce a lot of information that Mm -hmm. seems to really closely match the target some of the time you can really do that which is like how is that possible (laughs) right no one taught us about that did they i didn't i didn't learn about that anywhere in school right did you Did anyone teach you about this in high school or college? No, no, I was not taught this. But I have to say that my parents, although they were very traditional, uh, had very traditional upbringings and uh, were both raised Roman Catholic, they were open to these sorts of things. They were open to astrology and psychics. And I remember my dad on his nightstand had the book, the Ghost of Flight 401, and mm-hmm. Eric von Donneken's book, uh, Chariots of the Gods. Um, but we didn't talk about it, right? We didn't talk about it. And my, well, I, I shouldn't say, but there are some people in my family who are extremely psychic, just naturally psychic. Mm. Right. But we didn't talk about it. Uh, to me, it was, that's the way people were. And it wasn't until, and I'm still struggling with that, I'm still struggling with people who are not open to this, because I've always been surrounded by people who were open to it. Yeah, I, I, I it, for a lot of people, uh, that would include someone like George Norrie from Coast to Coast, 
who had an aunt who was very psychic. Yes. He's mentioned that a few times mm -hmm. when I've, he's mentioned it on the air when I've talked to him, you know, privately, his aunt got him interested in these topics. And uh, even someone like you're familiar with, Carla Jung, right. had a friendship with Wolfgang Pauli. Yes. Right? The quantum yep. physicist who had synchronicities happen to him and even PK events. Pauli had things move and break around him that he couldn't explain. And he consulted with Jung, apparently. Jung, too. Yeah, and Jung had those experiences as well. He had it. So, yes, yeah, so often we have these experiences. In my family, my mom was somewhat open to this. We had seen a UFO in the Everglades in the mid-early 70s when I was probably 13, 14. Uh, and we saw this thing come overhead when with, we had binoculars because we were bird watching in there. She was a bird watcher. How old were you? Or, I think like 13, perhaps, maybe okay. 12. Uh -huh. Yeah, around that time. And this thing was right over our heads. I mean, cloud height, but big. I could not understand what we were looking at. And I couldn't even get her to look at it for a few minutes. I said, Mom, what is this? And, and we looked up and it was this huge circular greenish object that had structures in it that you could see with the binoculars. Uh, you know, bird binoculars are quite okay. strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're for really looking at birds at a distance. They're not just to make things a little bigger. They're things to really magnify detail. And we looked at that for a 15, 20 seconds before it started moving. It was completely stationary and it moved into a cloud. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it had a pattern of dots beneath it that made it look solid and amorphous at the same time, which is impossible to describe, but that's what it looked like. And, you know, that was good enough for me at that age. Uh, we told the ranger that night at one of those ranger talks that they give at national parks right. that we had mm -hmm. seen this thing. She asked, started the rain, the session said, did anybody see anything interesting today? So my mom raises her hand. We saw a UFO. She goes, that's interesting. Did anyone else see anything interesting mm -hmm. today? She totally dodged it. So yeah. thinking, oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? We had something to say. We had seen this with binoculars, two people, sober, right. <laughs> kid and a mom, yeah. and she didn't want to talk about it. And I thought, why is that? Even the people we sat down to next to just synchronistically had seen it also. Oh. So now you had four people in the front row who'd seen this thing, and she didn't want to talk about it. And I thought, that was the beginning for me, that something wasn't right. Here, we yeah. had four people who had seen something really weird, no explanation. At first, I thought maybe it was a rocket booster or some, you know, from Cape Canaveral, something coming down, but right. it didn't come down. It just stayed, hovered. Things from Cape Canaveral don't hover. <laughs> they go up and they go down. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was, we never, and there was a blackout right afterwards that affected the whole area. And we said to her, well, there was a blackout. She goes, well, that happens all the time. You know, anyway, that's what happened to me at 12. And this subject sort of, I got a little interested in it. I read books. Um, I, I didn't really pick it up again till taking an RV class remote viewing because there were people there that had worked with NASA who just showed up for the training. After I'd taken the class, I became an instructor there mm -hmm. at Farsight. And I, uh, people interesting people come to RV classes, as you know, Laura, it isn't just to learn about RV. They want to be able to be around people that are open to what they've yes. experienced. And when you have people who've been at NASA, astronauts, I'm talking, mm -hmm. not people, you know, 
who just were loosely associated. The people actually either were con NASA contractors or were NASA employees. And they're telling you during the breaks, you know, you start to talk, you go out to lunch, and they, they start mentioning triangular craft, structures on the moon. And these are credible people. These aren't, you know, people doing this fictitiously. These are people who have had experience from seeing the films. So that's sort of... Yeah, their own yeah, their own NASA films that hadn't been shown to the public. Right. Essentially, they'd seen stuff that the public hadn't seen. And, and I, just, I just want to jump in really quickly yeah, because what you yeah. were saying about the park rangers' reaction yeah. is, I had heard you say we delete things that we don't think are real. Well, that is true. There are so many reasons, Laura, that we don't talk about some of these subjects and we don't even perceive them. Is because we're hardwired like any other mammal to see things that matter to our survival. You know, mm -hmm. chipmunks are oriented towards things on the ground that they can eat and predators that could be around, you know, hawks and owls have very good vision and they're looking for prey animals and things that they can eat. And this is all hardwired into us. And it, it happens after, you know, a few weeks after we're born, it starts getting hardwired, but it's affected by our, as humans, it's affected by our socialization about what we're told is real and what isn't real. And by the time we're a few years old, you know, you, you won't start seeing things that uh, you haven't experienced in some way that people haven't talked about, that you haven't paid attention to. This is why you get differences in between human cultures of what's considered real and not real. But uh, it's true, we, we're kind of our brains are deletion creatures and the, the research uh, that book, The User Illusion by Tor Noratranders. I discovered this book in the late 90s and it was a real pleasant surprise at 2002 at the IRVA conference in Austin, Texas, where Ingo Swan made his first appearance. Okay. Ingo Swan, meaning kind of the inventor of modern remote viewing or at least the system that I learned, there were a couple obviously different ways of doing it. There's mm -hmm. the Joe McMonagle system too, which is less structured. It's a different system, but Ingo's system was written and he had a way of doing it, you know, a natural psychic. And he had come to work at SRI from New York city. He kind of contacted them and had demonstrated some PK ability with researchers in New York at, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, City University of New York. I think he had worked with some Gertrude Schmeidler and some other people. And anyway, he had demonstrated some ability, and he uh, invented the system. But he didn't show up. He was kind of kept to himself. And mm -hmm. the, there were these remote viewing conferences that were started. You mentioned Stephen Schwartz in the beginning on one of the panels. There were people who had been associated with the official government remote viewing program that started something called or IRVA in uh, 2000. And the first conference was actually in 1999 before IRVA officially formed. Because these, these people from the government remote viewing program, there's a whole bunch, uh, you know, Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley and a bunch of others got together and said, and Stephen Schwartz, you know, we need to have an organization so the public can get educated about this. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, Ingo showed up at this the conference and he gave a great presentation. And he, here he said, you know what my favorite book is? The User Illusion by Torin Artrenders. Because, going back to your point, Nora Trangers in there tells us that consciousness is an illusion 
of our unconscious mind. It's produced by our unconscious processes, which we can't see. We only see what the unconscious wants to show us. And everything else is deleted. And Nora Tranders in there made an astounding claim, which you just mentioned a few minutes back, which is that we delete almost everything that comes into our sensory apparatus mm-hmm. every every second. 99.9 to many decimal places is deleted because our brains and our you know conscious processes and unconscious processes that run the show the thing that keeps your heart beating and your blood pressure at the right levels all those breathing respiration you don't think about those most mm. of the time right you mm. can if you want you could think about your breathing but it's automatic too those processes are regulated by the autonomic nervous system and um parts of our awareness that we're not conscious of. And Nora Tranders in this book made the argument that we're pretty much only conscious of things that matter to us for reasons of survival. Uh, and that most of what we see around us is deleted. And that's how we end up, we get to RV is that we can recap. It's deleted, but it's there somewhere in your mind. And you can, with training, you can get access to it again. But that's where it comes from, Laura, is Nora Trender's book that we delete. The, the motivational coach, Tony Robbins, also used to say this, we're deletion creatures, but he mm-hmm. didn't quantify it in any way. I mean, I like Tony Robbins. He was always fun to listen to, right? I'm sure a lot of people listened to him. Uh, when he was more active in the past, in the 90s, he had all these audiobooks and, you know, some motivational coach. And he would say, well, we're deletion creatures. How you feel depends on what you're deleting. Tony Robbins would always say, if you're feeling good, it's because you're deleting all the negative things that you could be focused on. And if you're feeling bad, it's because you're deleting all the positive things you could be focused mm-hmm. on. And I used to think about that. But then I came across Nortrenders, and he said it was true. But Nortrenders quantified it. And Ingo Swan mentioned it again in his lecture that we have more senses than we're aware of. We don't just have five. And Ingo made the argument in that presentation that we had 20 senses at least and those senses would be things like sense of digestion and other things that we don't pay attention to as much that are a little more automatic, but that you can pay attention to. And that's where Ingo came up with this idea for his RV system is that below the limit, you know, below this boundary where the word subliminal comes from, below the limit, it's where things are not, we're not conscious of that stimuli, but it's there if you stop deleting so much and so that's where that idea comes from mm-hmm. is you can train yourself not to delete as much and be more aware of your environment more present not so much on autopilot but actually paying attention to your perceptions and that's what we do in rv and we write it all down as you know because you took the class and when you stop editing so much and just told describe this target that i'm going to show you in 15 minutes believe it or not i know it seems even to me if I haven't done it in a while, I think, how does it work? It does, some, you can describe something that'll happen in your future by learning not to delete. It's coming back from the future. Why and how is a whole big story, but it seems to stream back from the future or somewhere else, yeah. Yeah, so you kind of uh, developed your own technique of remote viewing. And just to give the listeners a little bit of history, Ingo Swan developed the written technique, the structure that we learned from the government remote viewers. So 
Ingo Swan developed that structure for the two laser physicists at Stanford Research Institute, Dr. Right. Yeah, Drs. Russell Targ and Harold Putoff. Uh, and that's what was developed for the United States government, known as remote viewing. And then right. those original viewers, uh, after it became declassified in 1995, took it out into the world to teach it to people. And you learned it from Professor Courtney Brown at Emory University. And you learned it from him in 1996. And then you became an instructor. And after I saw you, I wanted to continue. And I did take a course, a, a short, very short course from another Farsight Institute instructor, because I had to be in Massachusetts for the summer, and she was set up there in Cambridge. And so I took her course. It was nothing like the experience I had with you where I was very immersed. I mean, there, it was a, with you, it was a small group. We were all there uh, together all day long. And then I think we went even went out to restaurants at night and we were very immersed in it. And and it was it was multifaceted. You showed uh, you showed films, right? And you talked about crop circles and Bashar, and so it was it was just multi multi level. And and then I did pursue a course with David Morehouse, where I went to California a few times, and then I went to British Columbia, and I learned the technique. I wanted to get good at the structure, but there's so much more to it. And that's what I find in your work is what you call subtle energy. And it, it's kind of, to me, it's beyond what, what we learn in remote viewing. So you developed what you call resonant sensing. I think you've also called it resonant viewing. Yeah. So would you, yeah, would you tell us about how you developed that? The thing to remember is these systems that we're talking about, no matter who's teaching it, what the way they're teaching it, it's just a recording technique for you. You're the viewer. The viewing comes from you, whether you're using a written system or a non-written system. These are secondary things. The system is, again, what Ingo was talking about is we have these perceptions which we suppress for a variety of reasons, socialization, Ingo called it reality boxes, right? We're in these reality boxes and RVs are attempting to get you out of this immediate reality box called space-time, linear space-time, so you can move around a little bit with your awareness. And so people have different systems. It all is, it, it's the same thing because we're pretty much all the same genetically. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a different way of recording it. I also worked with Lynn Buchanan and I, afterwards after the farsight incident because i wanted to see the way the military had done it and it wasn't all that different from farsight mm -hmm. but it was somewhat different in the sense that lynn was not he wasn't as rigid in saying you have to do it this way you have to do it he, he would break some of the ingo rules mm -hmm. based on what his experience what were jumping around in the phases not just saying you have to go from phase one to phase two to three but technically if you really felt like it you could go you know, from phase three back to phase two or jump from phase, you know, it was a little more flexible and he had, it was humorous. He told Ingo a couple of times he wasn't going to do it Ingo's way. And Ingo <laughs> is furious, but, in, but Lynn was practical. Look, he's yeah. working for the, he's getting paid to do this for the government for, pra, you know, applied things. It has to work. And so 
Lin was comfortable adapting and he wasn't quite as rigid in it, but it's all the same thing at the end. Uh, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whatever system works for you, because in my view, since, you know, to answer your question, it's based on physics. It's based on quantum mechanics. The way we understand that everything is frequency and energy. And that's what Max Planck said over a hundred years ago. And Albert Einstein, the founders of quantum mechanics, it's everything has frequency and energy and it doesn't, to move in a linear way, it jumps, you know, it has, it's packaged in these quanta, these little packets of energy. Um, and quantum mechanics is the science that tells us that everything's based on resonance and frequency. That is not my invention. I'm, I simply wanted to go back to the science that makes mm. life and reality work and get away from this. All these professions that we're involved with, they all love their terminology. Someday. Yeah. It doesn't matter which it is, if it's RV or any sort of practice, people love to develop terminology. And then they're going to say, we've got something special. We made it special in some way. But that's salesmanship, right? Right. I wanted to get back to the science and it's the it's science is resonance. It's pure quantum mechanics. That's what I think makes it work. And thank you for bringing up Wolfgang Pauli, because Jung's work with Pauli has been a big topic on this podcast. He's been mentioned many times in the episodes I've been doing about synchronicity. And I also had Deep Prasad on to talk about quantum computing. So this is, to me, this is the future. This is where we're going. And we're getting closer to understanding what's really going on here. Yeah, the thing is, we don't know what's going on here. And that's the most important thing to keep in mind is we don't know what's going on. And I think it would be better if everyone just accepted that we don't know what's you know going what, on. You know what, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. I just want to jump in here because what you just yeah, yeah. said is so important. And I want to tie this into what the topic of this, the main podcast here, speaking of young interviews with Jungian analysts is about Something my analyst would say is we don't know what this dream means because dream work is a big thing in in Jungian analysis. And there's so many people out there who think that they can interpret dreams. They publish these dream dictionaries. This symbol means that. If you dream about a dog, it means this. And that's what I said a few minutes ago is people love to create systems and codify them. And we say in sociology, reify them, which means objectify them. Mm and start treating them as if they're reality instead of human constructions. We start believing that our constructions are somehow reality. Great point. That's the problem here. Okay. You get a lot of people who with a certain point of view on what the UFO phenomena Mm -hmm. is and what any of these things are. So I, Laura, I like to take the other point of view. Uh I like to see how much I don't know. Because you need to open it up to let new things in. And you can't let new things in if your ego is telling you, I know what it is. We all have this ego. We all do this. But I try to train myself every day when I get up to remind myself I have no idea what's going on. If you think you know what's going on, it's just because you're believing a story that someone has told Mm -hmm. you or you've invented. And there's nothing wrong with believing in your stories as long as you know that they're stories. Mm -hmm. Okay? And stories change. Some of the archetypal stories stay the same for us for thousands of years, but a lot of the detail changes. And this is what we're dealing with. And this is why I love RV. You have to drop your story and just describe what you're getting in a micro sense, right? 
and you've done it, so you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. You have to let go of those. We have a column for that in the RV called analytical yes. overlay. Thank you, Ingo. <laughs> Will you let go of your stories? Yeah. One of our students took my class from Salt Lake. Denise, she gave me a little gray that had a little ray gun, like a little plastic figurine. Uh-huh. And on it, it was written, drop the story. Mm. And I love that little figurine with the ray gun. Because <laughs> we have these yeah. stories. Now, look. We don't know where this is going. And anyone who says they know where this is going is just fraudulent. We have no idea what we're getting involved with, especially with this report coming out from the Pentagon. I I don't think you can underestimate. I don't think you can overestimate the importance of of what we're talking about. if some if, they, if the officials in charge of running our society finally admit they don't know what's going mm-hmm. on, I will be cheering. I made mm-hmm. a little YouTube video about that last week. That is the most important thing any science process can admit is what we don't know. We don't know so much dark energy, dark matter, even the things we talk about in conventional science. We don't know what's going on. And it's fine to establish facts, but facts only have a half-life of about 50 years. 75 years and they're gone. Okay. The half-life of truth. I'm not making this no, up. No, I love that. The way it's you put how things. we've been trained. Yeah. We've been trained to want certainty. I'm My whole platform is about give up certainty and embrace the unknown. Because you need to be satisfied with life, too. It can't just be about facts and formal knowledge. It has to feel right. And you say that, every day. that societies don't want to be disturbed by new facts. Right. Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> Not even that colony of squirrels in your trees outside yeah. want to be disturbed. We don't. We like consistency, but we, as a species, and species that think some of the time, we know it's good for us to embrace new facts and new ideas. And it's very challenging. I'm going to say this as a sociologist. Institutions don't like to admit they were wrong. Mm-hmm. They always, all these institutions around and organizations, especially, especially government organizations. Oh, now I've got the sounds outside. What is that? They're just, I, I am not, I am visiting my brother uh-huh. in Minnesota. That, it's fine. There. They've decided they're cutting the, okay. So, <laughs> so the thing is that, and sociologists have pointed this out, mm-hmm. this type of routinization. Max Weber, the sociologist, pointed this out a long time ago, bureaucracy and routinization. There's this tendency for systems to get ossified and to become conservative and stick with their ideas and defend it no matter what. But it was one of those quantum physicists, was it Max Planck who said, who, who was it that said that the only way science advances is by the older scientists die? Mm, I've heard that. Isn't it Max Planck? I'm that? not sure, but yes. I don't remember that. A hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, one of them said this. This is the truth is people, we love to cling to our ideas, mm-hmm. right? And institutions love to do this. And that's why we don't have a lot of progress sometimes is because no one wants to admit they didn't know everything. And look, even the CDC came out recently and said, you know what? COVID never spread on surfaces. It's a respiratory yeah, disease. A couple that. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. That was shocking. We think that the chance that you could get it from a surface is minimal, which is basically their way of saying we were wrong. They use the word minimal, so they're, they're not totally wrong, right? But basically, it's hygiene theater. Now, I, I'm not saying don't take precautions, 
any precaution that doesn't cost a lot is worth taking. Mm-hmm. It can't hurt you to clean up a little more. Well, there's the bacteria thing, bacterial resistance, which you could get to use too many use of anti, you know, antibiotics and things that clean surfaces. And yeah, but we know about that. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, that just shows how much it took for someone there at the CDC to say, you know, we might as well finally reveal what we've been seeing is that you never could get it from surfaces. It's in the air. <laughs> and all right. Is that us saying we were wrong or is that saying we now have more information so we're changing our stance? Both. It's We're, we're saying focus more on wearing a mask, which I'm strongly in favor of, by the way. You know, even I'm glad that the restrictions are being released, but obviously I made a video about this, Laura, about the importance of wearing masks. I didn't see Even, that one. I, have, I, I want to watch that. Okay, so here's why I made that video. I wasn't trying to tell people what to yeah. do. I'm, I have a lot of friends who said, I don't believe the CDC or the government me, about yeah, masks. And I, st- I started doing research about it. And I thought, let's say I'm wrong. And all the studies I've read in Science Magazine show that masks don't work. I know I read that they are about 40% effective, which is better than nothing. Right. And then the long run, that's very effective if you're reducing something by 40. Right. But doesn't it also depend on the mask? I've seen people when I go yes. to the store, right. it's not covering their nose. Of course. Of course. And, and the, the, the gaps na- on the, the side. Nosers. Yeah. The, I just want to. What nosers. is that? Know, or the chin strap. Well, they wear it under their chin. I had them. Okay. So I know someone who was a naked noser and he ended up getting it oh. and had to go to the emergency mm. room. It was serious. It, I know many people have had this it's extremely serious people who've had it say it's like trying to breathe underwater so this is real and the reason i made the masked video for people to wear it is because there's no harm for the most part i know i get a little out of breath too when i'm hiking or something Mm -hmm. wearing the mask i get that i'm also a bicyclist i mean Mm -hmm. i get it but the point is when you can do things that don't create any harm that could could help you do it it's the black swan thing again is things that don't cost very much that can prevent a lot of harm, even if it turns out they were wrong and didn't do anything, it didn't cost you very much to do it. So the hand-washing thing isn't harmful. In fact, I think it probably improved the hygiene in our society a lot because it made us aware. I've often thought in airports that the water doesn't run long enough when you're washing your hands. It goes on for two seconds, right? And you got to put, it should run for 20 seconds. Honestly, that's what you, so look, no, I think it turns out that the, the they weren't looking at the right evidence with the COVID and the SARS uh, COVID two. It didn't spread that way, from what I'm reading. But nobody knew this a year ago. Right. They thought it's like the cold, it's like the flu. You got it. so well. It didn't hurt to have people wash their hands, and I bet restaurants are a lot cleaner, mm-hmm. right? And I've been to places which can be pretty gross, and those places are cleaner. So it had a benefit that way. But I don't think that's what the major vector was for how it spread. It was respiratory and masks. My reading is those the most effective way to do mm-hmm. it. But the point of this conversation is not to go too much into COVID here. And we're all happy for the moment. It does seem to have gotten a lot better, although I would say you don't know what's going to happen next either. These things are these things can adapt. Right much quicker than you would believe. Mm-hmm. And I've heard there are already variants out there that have adapted. So we don't want to focus too much on that. But the point is, we don't know what's going on. Now, governments and agencies and organizations like, and it gets back to remote viewing here. And I'll get back to the questions you asked about Black Swan Ghost way at the beginning, which I didn't answer yet. But is that uh, there's a tendency to get 
be certain. And all of us love to be certain. Our egos love to mm-hmm. be certain in our beliefs. We love to convince other people. What do we love more than anything is to convince people of our point of view? Yeah. I mean, Laura, I used to be on a debate team in high school. I know about all of this. I have friends who are lawyers. I know. But look, it's also, as a scientist, I have to take the other side, yes. which is how much don't we know? And, what, and, and this is what got us in this UFO trap for 70 years, is the government kept clamping down saying it's ice crystals. Right. It's flocks of geese. It's misidentifications of Venus. And they did this again and again until it got ridiculous. Even Heineck admitted the swamp gas idea with Dexter, Michigan was ridiculous because you don't get swamp gas at those temperatures when you had the Dexter, Michigan sightings in Hillsdale College about 30 miles away. So they they knew it was ridiculous or they They knew it was ridiculous. No, they knew it was ridiculous. The, The swamp gas thing, Heineck traced it. He said it was came from another scientist who, when they looked at his work, he was referencing a German scientist from the 1850s. That's how far the swamp gas thing went back with no credible evidence that it had any appearance in Michigan, any it's ever shown up in Michigan. It's a rare phenomenon. It's temperature limited. It doesn't happen at really cold temperatures. And there was no way any of that had anything to do with swamp gas, especially the Hillsdale College sighting, just to go off on the side uh-huh. here. But that was like 40, 50 kids seeing it out of their windows. Mm-hmm. They were in panic stricken, just like the Ariel school incident in South yeah. Africa. Remember, you know, that we saw about in Jamie Foxx yep. movie, the phenomenon. Right. And there's more coming out about the Ariel school. That's like 70 yeah. kids. Well, the Hillsdale College was another school sighting where this object near Dexter, Michigan, the same night, I believe, or the next night around the same period, they saw this this covering near one of the buildings and they're all looking out there and the policeman they called saw it right and somehow they were able just to say swamp gas and and this is why i wrote black swan ghosts because i realized laura if you talk to people individually and go to them and ask just ask them to share their story they're going to share stories with you that they've never told anyone else because it doesn't fit because if you have society telling you that it's a swamp gas and you're a kook and it could cost you your job. You know, you could get ostracized. You could lose your job as a pilot. Certainly in the military, you're thinking about promotions. You're not going to be talking about seeing, you know, things up there that you're not expected to see. So that these mechanisms in place that repress the truth. And that's why, again, it's so important. Not what we do know. It's what we don't just to admit you don't know what it is. If Heineck had just said, I don't know what they saw at Hillsdale and Dexter. There was a third location, by the way. Three locations within a few days, same sort of stuff. It was like a wave in Michigan for some reason. The honest thing is to say, I don't know. Because we don't know what's out there. We're this one little planet in this vast universe, which actually I think is more like a multiverse. It makes it even bigger. And that's what my lecture is about at Contact. The, the the ways that people are studying this scientifically, mm-hmm. if you thought it was big now, mm-hmm. just wait till they get some evidence in the next couple of years that there's a particle out there that doesn't make sense. It had to come from a parallel mm-hmm. reality. And cha- chapter 25, that? I just want to point out my favorite chapter in Black Swan Ghost yeah. is chapter 25, yeah. which is titled Our Multidimensional Universe. Right. Well, if you have all these really good physicists talking about this since the 50s, it was repressed like UFOs, the multiverse idea. You had people like playing the role of Heineck, who changed their mind later, said it's real. But initially, when Hugh Everett III proposed this at Princeton, Mm -hmm. which was like 
major physics center in the yeah. U.S., had major connections to the Manhattan Project and government research projects, by the way, which isn't inherently a bad thing. We just you need to disclose what's going on so we know how the information is being, you know, guided in ways that make it less objective. Those guys didn't like the Hugh Everett approach. They were focused on the Copenhagen approach mm-hmm. uh, from Niels Bohr and others. They didn't, you know, John Wheeler was the head of the physics department there, I believe it, at Princeton. And he didn't like this multiverse approach. And they told Hugh to basically knock it off. He did publish his dissertation, but they had he had to edit it out. All the stuff that talked about alt- relative alternative states, right? And he just said, Look, the math shows that there's multiple possibilities in any space from the Schrodinger equation. There have to be multiple, many possibilities. You know, think Deepak Chopra. Many possibilities. A lot of people have said this in many different ways. And that's what Hugh Everett said. There has to be, we're just seeing a slice of reality. There's all these other real, they're real realities. We're not seeing the whole picture, like deletion creatures. Well, it wasn't because of our brain deleting everything that doesn't fit with what we've been taught, this kind of socialization process. Mm-hmm. He was looking at it from a mathematical point of view with the Schrodinger equation, which describes probabilistic and it describes a vast range of possibilities for any particle or group of particles. And Everett said, well, since everything's interacting with everything else, you don't have these objective conditions where we're taking a measurement and then we're outside the experiment. Hugh made the big leap, said, look, we're part of the universe. We're not separate from it. So everything is interacting with everything else. And there's only one. He called it a universal wave function. It's kind of a cool idea. Universal wave function. And that universal wave function describes in any situation where you are any situation that can be described with quantum mechanics a range of possibilities and it doesn't narrow down just to the one that you see this is the difference between the multiverse idea and the previous idea by the way and which is why i put it in black swan ghosts and everything uh that's why i research it now it's it's important because it's the other idea we got from niels bohr and uh, John von Neumann and others who are trying to make sense of how you reconcile the Schrodinger equation with what, with the reality we see around us of things seem to have a certain color and a certain temperature, right? They seem kind of fixed. Mm-hmm. They don't seem like they're floating around like a, a glowing jellyfish, all possibilities at all times. Uh, it, it just seems fixed to what it is that you're in the moment. And it didn't, doesn't fit with what the Schrodinger equation tells us should be happening. So von Neumann and others... Uh, Eugene Wigner and others, they said, well, maybe our consciousness collapses the wave function. But what people need to remember about that interpretation, which has been very popular, and I've been exposed to it many times over the decades, is that's just a philosophical way of thinking about it. There's no evidence for that. There is no evidence that there's a wave function collapse. And that's what Everett said. If there's no wave function collapse, Laura, you've got multiverses, like it or not. I'm sorry. (laughs) No one said you have to like this. And I often say to people, if you don't like this idea, I'm sure you can find a part of the multiverse somewhere where it doesn't seem like a multiverse Mm. and you can feel safe in your universe again. But if you don't have a collapse of the wave function and that that was really just metaphysics, there was no reason to say that. They just couldn't figure out any other way to talk about it. Right. So maybe the wave function, it's not a real wave function, by the way. Well, it could be. But it was just that then probability function. Maybe it just collapses to a point when you look at it. 
But then people like you, Everett, said, well, what's, where does the rest of the information go, right? We're into information now, right? Yeah. Where does the information go? They said, don't ask, don't tell. Shut up and calculate, basically. Mm -hmm. Just don't ask where everything else goes. Just stop asking that question. And you, Everett, said, I won't stop asking that mm -hmm. question. And they said, well, then you're kind of out. Now that's censorship. Yeah, and, and, and look, no he, one's he, ever heard of him. I mean, he's not, he's not. You can watch a great movie that they showed on PBS by his son, Mark Everett, who's a guitarist in the band called the Eels. Mark Everett was the one who found all of his notes and things in the attic. What's the film called? The Many Lives of Hugh Everett. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it was called. It's excellent. Okay, I'll find it and, and put a they, link to it in the They show talked notes. to Max Tegmark. I'll bring in one more person. I don't want to overload people. They bring in Max Tegmark from MIT who wrote one of the original books a couple of years ago called Our Mathematical Universe. And in this book, Max Tegmark argues that the Hugh Everett approach is one way you can get to multiverses. There's also a cosmological way you can get if the universe is expanding and expanding. Eventually, it's going to branch out into other parts. And there's many ways to get to multiverses, by the way. And that's what Max Tegmark, four, he pointed out four ways. The third way is the quantum way of Hugh Everett. That's how I came across oh, okay. this. I was reading Max Tegmark's book, and, I, and he said, multiverse. I thought, well, wait a minute. What about all these phenomena we, you and I have been involved with, Laura? UFOs and RV and many other things. Yeah. Paranormal phenomena, ghosts and time travel. These things seem to be real based on talking to mm -hmm. people and the evidence. Mm -hmm. People report time travel experiences. They, you've encountered people, I'm sure, that said they went somewhere and there was a restaurant there that they went in only to find out the next day it didn't exist. They go back and it's gone. Yeah. Yes, I've heard this from, I know people have experienced this. It's weird and it's creepy. You go back to something. The music is all from a certain time period. Everything looks like the 70s or the 80s or some people 50s or 100 years ago. And then it really wasn't there. And they go back the next day. Yeah. So you've heard about this sort of time oh, yeah. travel experience. Uh, Tim Schwartz has written uh, some great books about this. And um, this is also what is going on here. If this is all real, so you need to start considering other modalities of how it works, other or models of reality. This is how you get to the multiversal art. This is the, the traditional way we've looked at it of the quantum you know, wave collapsing. This is all you get. All you see is what you get. That's it. That doesn't work to explain all these phenomena, mm -hmm. right? Right. So uh, that's why you start looking at parallel realities and the idea that we could, and I think we have to start considering this now. This is why it's better not to say you know what's going on, because it's almost too shocking to uh, to consider. But the possibility is we have to consider we're around other realities that we can't perceive, but they're in our same space time. But normally, because they're a different frequency, like a radio dial, we're only perceiving, you know, a certain sliver of reality. But there's other ones next to us, and maybe sometimes they come through. And we, they affect us a little bit or a lot. That's as far as we've gotten so far. <laughs> but this, I mean, other people have worked out the math and Hugh Everett quit academics and went to work for the government, the Defense Department, and never went back to academics again. But other people like Sean Carroll have proposed this idea very recently that this makes sense. And there's other versions of Everett, by the way, which is many interacting worlds, which these realities 
don't even need a Schrodinger equation. They, they just, it's just a fact of life that they're parallel realities. How about that? And they've looked at the physics behind it. You get the same predictions from quantum mechanics. It doesn't change that. It's just saying maybe you don't need the wave function. So people are starting to question this. And when I talk to physicists about this, they can sometimes become very defensive. Mm -hmm. We sure. don't need those multiverses. Nobody wants it. I said, <sighs> some people, it's not whether you want it. It's where does the data point to it? Mm -hmm. And you can't get involved in all these phenomena that you and I and everyone listening studies and look at are fascinated by, right? without considering, well, is there some science behind this? And if it is, it's parallel realities for me. That's one way. Even RV, which we've talked about, right, could be you getting information from your future self 15 minutes in the future. Lynn Buchanan actually described it to us that way in his RV class in Alamogordo, New Mexico. He said, I, I was, it was a new idea for me. There's a version of you 15 minutes ahead in the future that's already sending back the info. Well, why not? It could be one way that it works. So this is why I like to be open-minded about this, because we want to know what's going on. And we have all the experience, you know, I'm talking about the data and people we talk to and information. And rather than saying, shut up and calculate, I don't like that shut up and calculate attitude. That's what it was after the fifth, during the 50s and since. Don't worry about these philosophical questions and the data. And so what we ended up doing just so everyone knows, is for 70 years we've been ignoring data that doesn't fit because that's what you were told to do if you wanted to keep your job in your physics department. And physicists wouldn't look at UFOs, they wouldn't look at Bigfoot, they wouldn't look at time travel, all these things that real people experience every day. We know it, these are things are real, but they don't fit the model. So this is what's going on right now with this government report that's coming out this week is we're dealing with this vacuum, Laura. This is how I see it, to kind of stop, to bring all this together a little bit, is uh, just for a second to bring it together is we've been in this sort of uh, science vacuum for 70 years. We haven't been looking at the data. And one thing that Hal Putoff, who you mentioned, one of the people at SRI that worked with Ingo, with Russell Tart, Hal Putoff told us at 2018 at the SSC meeting, uh, IRVA SSC combined meeting in Las Vegas, is there's too much sensor data now to avoid talking about UFOs. He was very blunt about it. And what are we hearing right now on the news from John Ratcliffe, former director of national intelligence and others? There's so much sensor data that I've seen that I wanted to release to the public, but it's classified and there's tons of it <laughs> from satellites, and all these other sensor systems. It's exactly what Hal told us in 2018. So you can see what's going on here. The, our ideas are beginning to catch up with the data that we weren't allowed to talk about publicly for 70 years, could be. That's what's going on, Laura. Right. That's my assessment of it. Just going back to something you said, because uh, I don't want this to slip through the cracks, about uh, what Lynn said about your future self. I remember distinctly in the last day of the course I took with you there in Boulder, we did an exercise, I don't remember what it was called, but um, mm. you were teaching us about, I think we started with a coin flip. Is this gonna be heads or is this gonna be tails? What are you right, gonna right. see a few minutes from now? And also either you talked about or we did the outcome of sporting events, yes. which I have been working with this entire time. Um, and that's how I determine it. I. I think about, you said what color is going to be predominantly on the field after yes. the clock goes to zero. Mm -hmm. 
It's called ARV. Now, I, as you mentioned in the beginning, thank you. I don't call it remote viewing, I, just simply because it's not really a remote experience. Yeah, let's You're talk getting, about that, that term. And, and then I'll tell viewing. you what ARV is. Okay. Yeah, so I call it resonant viewing because I think, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's a, it's a resonant frequency-based process based on quantum. Everything that exists has a frequency. This is what Planck, Max Planck told us. And with Planck's constant, this sort of minimum unit of action, everything is a multiple of that Planck's constant. That's our reality that we live in here. Everything's a multiple of the Planck constant in frequency. And energy is simply a function of, uh, of frequency, basically, and Planck's constant. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It comes down to yeah. that. So it's resonance. We're talking resonance, talking energy. Remote viewing, they had to call it something cool to get the, the government funding. Ingo came up with that term, I believe. But I don't think that's what he really yeah, thought it was. So because misleading. it's not remote because you're right. you're getting the information, like receiving it, you know, analogously like a radio, you know. Uh, you're getting the information, so it's not really remote, or uh, you would be getting it in your chair. So it's a resonance process. It's not always viewing because some people are better at picking other types of information up. But it sounded kind of like satellite stuff and that's good for grants right as the funny thing is laura you were in that office in boulder yeah. where i taught the classes i haven't done them in a while because of covid but maybe we'll do them again soon i've just been doing them by zoom but there was a, a guy in there who saw my remote viewing he saw the name remote viewing and he thought oh he, he took he wanted to go out to lunch with me he thought i ran a, ran a satellite oh. sensing company he was disappointed that when he found out what it was. Well, there's also remote sensing, which yeah, is another satellite technique. Yeah, that's the also. Route but bus, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think of it more as a resonant energy frequency process. So you can call it whatever you want. I just think it's a resonant process where you're picking up frequencies, and uh, so it's good to uh, it's good to you know whatever you're going to call it. It, it should be sort of accurate, you know. Um, but the ARV is, to go back to your question about that, that technically means associated remote viewing. You're associating a target, which you'll be shown in the future, with an outcome of a sporting event or any binary event, which means up or down, heads or tails. That's binary. And this technique was developed by people. They figured, hey, if this really works, we could show that we can predict you know, the stock market or some commodity prices a week ahead of time. And they did it. Russell did it with his spook group, Russell Tarn. They got in the Wall Street Journal. You can see it. I think it's from the 80s somewhere. The Del- They called themselves Delphi Associates, and they had an investor. And it worked. They, they had a high success rate. I forgot how much they made. But it was a good. it was so good the investor wanted them to do it twice a week. And that's when they said no. These were grad students uh-huh. in the spook, the spook group, as it was called. Uh, and uh, they, weren't, they weren't allowed to get any of the proceeds from this. So they started thinking, well, once a week is enough. They didn't, they didn't do it twice a week, and the project ended. Because it was so successful, the investor wanted them just to keep doing this for him and making tons of money. Then Hal Putoff did it to raise some money for a Waldorf school in his neighborhood. And I forget how much he made couple hundred thousand or something. Uh, and then Greg Kalajic, who is this endurance marathon extreme sports guy, mm-hmm. he did it for 13 years just to show that it worked for fun himself with no judges, no 
other people around just him. He would pick two targets and then say, what am I gonna, which target am I going to show myself on Friday after the market is closed, up or down? And you start to describe, you know, it, it's challenging. You draw your little phase three drawings and stuff, and then you look, oh, and then you look at the target and say, this is the up target. So that means I'm going to show this to myself again. If preferably you have a judge do it so you don't see the target. But that's what you're referring to, Laura. Yeah. And collages, it got 65% accuracy, which is unheard of. Over 13 years, over 5,000 mm. trials. It should revert to the 50-50 if it's really random. Mm -hmm. And he, Kalajic made, you know, he made a couple hundred thousand, 140,000 or something, which he didn't think was a lot uh, for 13 years of work. Uh, he, he said he made more from his job. Sure. But it did show that there's this, feed, what you're saying, the feedback from the future. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's where that comes from. And that could be what's literally going on in our week, not. 100%. Here's how we know it's not 100% that, Laura. You know how we know? Hmm. Because I've given targets to people in the RV class, something like Leaning Tower of Pisa. And I've shown this in some presentations. And they got, I got, my picture was showing the Leaning Tower of Pisa head on with the tower and this sort of castle in the back. Okay. But they got it from the side. And they described mountains in the back looking at it from the side. And I didn't know when I gave him that target what was on the mm -hmm. side because I've never been there. But I looked online. And if you look online for Lean Tower, you'll see there are hills behind it, just like they drew in their RV mm -hmm. session. That was not in their feedback. Oh. It was not in their feedback. That had to be, they had to get something from the site itself because I couldn't discover it for several days until I looked around. I said, hey, well, that's exactly what they drew. So it isn't 100% feedback from the future. Some of it is getting information from the site too. That's what I think at least. And I want to point out that remote viewing is not visualization. That's something different no. because I've heard the yeah. term just like with everything else, just like in the Jungian community with terminology, I've heard the term remote viewing used, I'm a stickler for this, used incorrectly where somebody sits down and tries to visualize the answer to something. That's not remote viewing. No. And visualization is a good thing to do, by the way. I mean, athletes use it very mm -hmm. effectively. But it's so different. Many people. Oh, it's, it's different. In this, we're not trying to tell the target what it's doing. We're just trying to be open to it. Yeah, it's different. Mm -hmm. It's different than forming goals in your mind and doing that sort of stuff, which visualization is a very effective thing, but it's not the same as RV. Uh, you can adapt it in some ways. And I've done that in this course. I taught, I still teach it called human fusion, which is to take the RV process and use it to create the images of what you would prefer to happen in your life, you know, specific things around your businesses and things and things you're doing in your life. But this RV that we're talking about is like an open slate. Like there's no preconception. You're absolutely right. It's different. Another thing you point out, I think you were maybe talking about Ingo and you knew Ingo Swan. You spent some time with him right before well, he passed away in did, 2013. Yeah. It was it Ingo who said, this is not paranormal. This is normal. Yeah. It's just that you yeah. haven't been trained to pay attention to these signals that are coming in. That's right. I went over to visit him. It, unfortunately, he's a week before he passed on. I had, you know, I, uh, someone I knew game, finally gave, I, I was looking for him with my girlfriend in New York. She lived there at the time. We would play Let's Find Ingo using... Mapped out because you didn't know where he lived. 
We didn't know. Okay. We knew he lived somewhere down on, you know, the Bowery, Bowery yeah. area of Manhattan, down there. And we got within two blocks of his house. We said, I feel it's here. It just feels like mm-hmm. him. And we were at a coffee shop called Think Coffee, which was across the street, a diagonal across the street from him, about a block From his away. apartment, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got that close. And later on, uh, my girlfriend, Susan, said, you know, when we did find out where it was, she said, you know, every time I walked by this house, I always got this. He owned a whole building, a four-story building. Every time I walked by there, I always had this weird feeling. Mm. And that's where it turned out to be. Now, I finally got his phone number because we realized we could do this forever and get close where we have to verify. So I got knew someone in him. I called him. He called back a couple weeks later. He said, come over. And we had a nice chat. And that, that chat, he did say, uh, it isn't paranormal. It's normal. Mm-hmm. Get this what we're RV and all these other topics. This is normal. That is reality. He goes, what's happening out there on the street? He pointed down to the street below. He goes, that's subnormal. Subnormal. <laughs> I love it. What he yeah. meant by that is our nor- our idea of normal is subnormal from a galactic point of mm. view. Now this is important. This is very important, and this is why again, don't pretend you know what's going on. Our idea of our ideas of reality have been way too limited and too narrowly focused. There's other types of life around. And yeah, you can ignore it. We can live in our reality boxes, but normal for Ingo was being aware of a huge range of possibilities, being able to remote view the moon like he did. And send, as he said to Russell and how I can put my mind anywhere in the universe. Right. So this is, for him, that was normal. It isn't paranormal. It's not special. It was big for Ingo that there are no psychics. Ingo was very specific about this. There are no psychics. It's natural. It's a natural ability everyone has. They may not know they mm-hmm. have it, but they have it. The ability to do RV and other things, psycho- psychokinesis, all the other things. Yeah. Uh, you know? moving things around with your mind. Not everyone can do it. I, I've actually never seen myself do it, but there are people that can do it. It's real. Uh, and I'll be talking about that in the workshop. I, I had a very vivid dream about that once that, that I, I always remember. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but I remembered that. And one of the things that, that I heard you say about remote viewing that I love and sticks in my mind is it's about how to retrain yourself to listen to the quiet signals right it's not the loud shout it's that quiet voice it's very subtle stuff and um just because of the type of people that we are in the modern society we're used to paying attention to you know well-defined information Mm -hmm. right loud signals especially nowadays with all the gadgets we have around and screens that we're paying it's almost like if it's not on the screen it's not real Mm -hmm. right somewhere and we, but it's like that with our senses too. It's like we don't pay attention unless it's a loud uh, signal. And RV teaches you to pay attention to your feelings, gut feelings. And this is how the universe works. So universe works through vibe and feelings. I mean, you mentioned that I'm a guitar player. I mean, yeah. you're working with nonverbal information, and it has its own patterns and flow. It's just something that your ego might not. Yeah, you know, doesn't understand as well because our whole training unless you've been trained as an artist is to 
pay attention to logical, formal information. And it's, it's like that now to the extreme. But when I was in grad school, I had already discovered fractal geometry. And fractals always show you that there are things that can't be defined on a line. They don't have a scale. They're not easy to talk about. Fractals are not easy to talk about. You can't even describe what you're looking at, right? It's all similar objects like lung structures and the way our hair looks mm -hmm. and things that branch like trees, you know? That is the language of nature is fractals. And we, as modern people, want to make it Euclidean. Ever since the Greeks, we want to make it intelligible and sort of defined. And as you, you know, the listeners are getting the feeling as you understand, Laura, someone who's known me, I like to go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. How much undefined can we make it? Why? We want to pick up what's really out there in reality. Not what we've been told. Yeah. Not the stories. What is actually, what are you really looking at when you're looking and you're around a tree? It doesn't fit those square shapes, those round shapes, those perfect shapes and that perfect information that we've been taught exists. It's well known from mathematics, Gödel and Turing, uh, Alan Turing, you know, the guy that really deciphered the, the Nazi codes that really kind of won World War II for us. <laughs> and Kurt Gödel, the mathematician, also at Princeton, by the way, also another Princeton mathematician, physicist, you know, mathematician. They created this incompleteness theorem is that any logical system is always going to be incomplete. You can prove this from set theory if you read the books about why this is true. It's just sentences like this. The following sentence is true. The previous sentence is false. These are illogical. Taken apart, each sentence makes sense. Put it together and it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense anymore. It destroys itself. Following sentence is true. The previous sentence is false. <laughs> These are the things that Kurt Gödel loved to play with. It comes from set theory that logical systems are inherently, uh, they have an irrational side. Nobody wants to look at the irrational side. But why do we want to look at that? Because of these UFOs and the people inside them, whoever is that intelligence guiding these craft that we've been seeing for decades and hundreds and thousands of years, it doesn't fit the formal system we have. And that's what Kirk Girl said. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. So yeah. you're, you're going to encounter data that doesn't fit at all. Again, another reason not to pretend you know what's going on. You want all of the data. If you do want all the data, and I think those of us who are interested in this subject, we wouldn't be involved with something like Contact in the Desert or your podcast. If we weren't really curious what's really going on, not what we're being told, not what 95% of people believe, what is actually the truth. Every once in a while, society has to get involved with the truth or will become extinct, right? Mm -hmm. So it is for survival reasons, it's important to actually look at this data. And finally, the Pentagon was made, you know, the Senate Intelligence, isn't that interesting? Someone from the Senate Intelligence Committee, Marco Rubio and others, and Senator Harry Reid and other senators said, we really want to know what these objects are in our airspace. Yeah. Even if it's uncomfortable for you, Pentagon, to talk about it, well, who is actually there? And the truth seems to be, uh, I could be wrong, we don't know. It's not anyone we can identify. We don't think Russia or China is that far. It could, could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, but it really could be. There's an unknown. Can you imagine that? And there's something we don't unknown that's flying around in our atmosphere and under the water. We don't know. Have, we have no clue who it is. I think that's fascinating.
And I think if we had Kurt Girdle here, Alan Turing, they would have loved this conversation yeah. too. Because this is what they showed. And it's, these are smart people. So, And so, Laura, just to get one back, you asked me about Black Swan Ghost mm-hmm. way at the beginning, an hour and a half ago. And I didn't answer it. It's okay. So where so I have to get, no, I have to answer the question because this is kind of what led us in all these different paths. Okay. Simply, Black Swan idea from the Seam to Lab is there can be events which you don't foresee, which could have a huge impact that you didn't see coming, right? And it's not COVID. People knew about viruses. That's naturally not a black swan event because we knew about okay. it. Black swan events are things more like asteroids colliding or something totally improbable. I mean, a virus showing up once every 100 years like this, a retrovirus, uh, excuse me, a, a SARS virus or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's conceivable, right? right? So it's not totally black swan because it happened in the Spanish flu. These things happen once in a while. We've heard about plagues and you know, these things that happen to us, the, the bubonic plague from the Middle Ages that apparently wiped out two-thirds of Europe. These things right. happen. We know about mm-hmm. it. The black swan events are the things that we're not even talking about. Um, that's black swan events. They're going to have a huge consequence, but you haven't even seen them coming. We call these tail events in statistics. And the idea in black swan uh, the black swan idea, which I find very appealing as a former statistics teacher, is that there are things that you're underestimating the potential impact on society. That's black swan events. And these are things like the credit crash that happened in 2008, 2009, where so many of these banks, they were each lending and borrowing from each other with this mortgage insurance mm-hmm. that if one of them went down, they couldn't honor the insurance policy to the banks, other banks. And each one, like dominoes going down, that's a black swan event. Because nobody saw that coming. It was considered to be a one in a million thing. And it happened, you know, 2008. That was the crunch crash of 2008-9. It was these banks correlated with their kind of correlated assets in a way that there was no protection. If one went down, it was also highly leveraged. You kind of understand that idea. And then as a whole, there's nothing there. It's like a musical chair. There's nowhere to sit down when the music stops. But my idea, deviously enough, okay. Black Swan Ghost. My idea was, what if there are things that could happen that aren't even considered real, Mm. (laughs) like UFO Mm. disclosure? So I'm not talking about credit crash Mm -hmm. and stuff that we could sit down and talk and say, I could see that happening, but you might not have thought about it before. That would be a black swan event, right? Something that was in the system, like a, a weakness in the system that you hadn't seen coming, that no one was talking about. That's the credit crash. That's a black swan event. Okay. But there's black swan ghost events to me are more what we're talking about here is let's say there's other intelligences around us that not only haven't we talked about it, if you ask the average person, they wouldn't even believe it was real. Maybe that's black swan ghost events for me. Things that are so far off the charts that, I mean, you've had evidence and data for it, but the media don't consider it really say swamp gas. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Denial. It's, it's gone beyond not talking about it. It's to the point where if you did bring it up, there'd be intense denial. Those are the black swan ghost events. And I consider UFO ET types of phenomena as black swan ghost events just because, and it could be changing. Maybe they won't be. But if, if it's disclosed all of a sudden to be real and no one's thought about mm-hmm. it, then that has a big impact, right? And a larger impact than you would expect. I mean, Remember Richard Dolan writes that book, uh, The Day After Disclosure, Disclosure with uh, Bryce Zibel. Yeah, I haven't uh, read it. 
Bryce Zab- Zab- uh, what's his name? Br- Bryce Zabel. Yeah, well, I liked Richards and Bryce's description. That, that sort of got me going in this direction. I mean, what happens if – now, they had this idea for a disclosure event where it's just like the government announces it at mm-hmm. 5 p.m. on a Friday. Right. I don't think it's going to happen like that where there's going to be a, an announcement in the east wing of the White mm-hmm. House where, okay, they're here. But in their scenario, like people are afraid to come out of their homes, right, because we don't know who's around. I mean let's say like um, – like uh, – what was his name? The uh, the one the guy that served at NATO headquarters, Shafe headquarters, Bob uh, Dean, right? Sergeant Commander Rob, uh, Bob Dean, who used to present at these conferences. I'm, I'm and, not familiar with him. Uh, yeah, he was on our board of directors for Institute of Resonance, and he had worked at NATO headquarters and had been shown one night. The buddy said, "Hey, you want to see something interesting in the safe?" And uh, Robert Dean, Robert O. Dean. You could look him up. He did a lot of presentations. He came across, and I talked to him about this. This is what I'm talking about. He came across a NATO book that detailed four types of species that NATO had determined, ET species that were here on the planet in significant numbers, uh, maybe potentially significant numbers. It came about because NATO did their own study of the ET phenomena because there you had UFOs showing up at the border between East and West Germany, uh, the Iron Curtain, and uh, they couldn't explain it, and they didn't want to go outside of NATO because they didn't trust, you know, any of the other intelligence agencies. There was a lot of, uh, you know, Soviet spy activity, so they didn't. They just wanted to keep it within NATO. When was so they this? did their own sixties? Okay, sixties. This is way back in the sixties. And Bob Dean has said, always said, he's passed on now, but he always said one night, the guy said, you know, you want to look in the safe? I got it open or something. There was some, and there was a book. And Bob got to spend a couple hours looking at this book, and it was the four types of species visiting the Earth. And there was, I think, the typical gray. There was a reptilian type. There was uh, another type. And then there was a type that looked exactly like humans. And that was the type that concerned them the most because they could have infiltrated. That's the word they use, infiltrate the government. or You you get the idea. So I went up to Bob. I said, well, how thick was that appendix uh, of – pictures of you know details of these species that are visiting us and he put his hands a couple inches thick if the main book was Mm -hmm. like so thick the appendix with all the detail Mm -hmm. about the et species was i I think if i remember asking him this at laughlin he his fingers were probably inch two inches thick of paper uh it was a thick real book Mm -hmm. and so so this is the scenario and i'm not trying to scare people and I'm not saying this is necessarily true, but this is what was in the NATO publication that Bob talked about. There was a species here that looked exactly like human. And I asked Bob, I said, were they humans that had been relocated to other planets for any way, possible way, or were they ETs that looked like humans? And Bob said the book didn't say. When we and my question has always been, are the beings that are here that look like humans, that are not human, do they know that they're not human? We need to talk to them and find yeah. out. I mean, the, the implications of this you can see are really vast. And we don't want to release, I mean, it could scare people. People may not want to come out of their house. How many people, it was, we just saw with COVID, how many people right. do you have stopped shopping before yeah. stores start shutting down. Uh, the scenario that Dolan and Zabel put together was 
what happens if truck drivers, how many truck drivers do you need to stop driving before the economy stops? Yeah, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that. So anyway, I don't want to get into that scary side of things. But that is to me what the black swan goes. You can kind of see where I'm going with this. It's so on, it's so off your radar that it could have a really huge impact because of the fear level, because we haven't been talking about it for decades and decades. We've been told it's swamp gas. And let's say you find out the swamp gas was really visitors that look like you, and maybe they're living next to you right now. You don't even know that they're ET. Think of that scenario. So I don't know if this is true. I'm, I can't. Bob isn't here for us to ask anymore. We haven't seen that NATO document. All the purpose of writing a book with that title is, let's say it is true. Mm-hmm. What is the impact? It's beyond a regular black swan event where there's a credit crash for a couple of years, right. as painful as those are. Mm-hmm. This is something that could keep people from wanting to go outside. Or uh, well, who knows what? So anyway, it's, it doesn't mean a negative effect, by the way. It just means an unpredictable effect. Anyway, that's 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 the idea. So then when I was interviewing all these people, I said, well, let's say all this is true. The people I mentioned in Black Swan goes the police, a policeman in the UK gets off duty at 5 a.m. driving home and sees what looks like a spaceman walking around next to a college in the area. He had there have been reports of UFOs in the neighborhood that the night before. Mm-hmm. And then he, he looks and he sees what seems to be an eight to nine foot tall spaceman in a suit. <laughs> yeah. There have been reports and stuff. Or, you know, Air Force pilots that have seen objects, just like we're hearing from the Navy, but this was Air Force in the uh, one of the the Arab-Israeli wars from the 60s, Yom Kippur War, I believe it was, where they're flying missions near the Soviet border just to deter the Soviets from getting involved in the conflict. And these things come out of the sky and circle around their B-52 convoy. And all their systems go offline, electronic systems for a few minutes, stuff like that. And then they're told not to talk about it. Cameras are confiscated. And these are sorts of the stories, uh, people who've encountered what seem to be extraterrestrials or non-humans just taking a hike. Uh, so uh, these sorts of things I started adding, I'm thinking, man, well, how many other people have experienced mm-hmm. this, Laura, mm-hmm. who aren't saying anything? Yeah. Uh, in other words, that's to me the big point. Is, and this is really important. How much don't we know that people have experienced? They're not sharing it because they're afraid of the ridicule. Not sharing it. Because when these people who told me those stories, a lot of the people, Lynn Buchanan has a story yeah. there, by the way, too. Lynn Buchanan has a story. He told this to us at the RV class. I said, Lynn, can I put this in the book? He, he, uh, it, it's, he apparently was taken on a craft. Yep. It's according to what he remembered. Yeah. And uh, he had a lot of questions later, what he had seen and who they were. And they apparently offered him a job as a, as a pilot. But so this is the thing. If these stories are true and these people aren't sharing the information, is our, is our sense of reality as the we have right now, 2021 in the summer, is it way off from what reality really is? It has to be. Yeah. Our definition of reality is incomplete. Is incomplete. Is incomplete. And another thing that I love that you say is that we're not as conscious as we think we are. You sound like a Jungian, Simeon. We're not as conscious as we think we are. We are. We're not. We, it, we, we're seeing, again, going back to Nordtrand, we're seeing this little trickle of information like I think it's a millionth of a percent. A millionth mm-hmm. of a percent. I'm, not, I'm being serious. Yeah. That's what the data seem to show. A millionth. There's 20, this is what the statistic was. I'll just remind everyone. 
something like 40 million bits of information come into your five physical senses per second in terms of colors and sounds and temperatures. 40 million bits can be described with, you know, if it was a CD, it would be 40 million bits, a, a regular audio CD. And you're perceiving uh, 20 bits a second or 16 or something like that. You're perceiving 16 bits a second and there's 40 million in your brain that gets deleted. You're just seeing them. That's what the argument is. You're seeing a minimal amount of what's going on around you. So how much are you missing? Because you're tuning it out. You feel you don't need to see it. Yeah. So I wonder, do we, do we not have the capacity or we don't know we have the capacity? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't realize we have the capacity. People like you have taken RV classes from me and others. Uh, you'll be aware that you have more capacity, right? Mm -hmm. I think, did, did it show you that, Laura, that you have more capacity? What did, oh, what did it yeah. show you? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm sure that I have way more than, <laughs> obviously, way more than, than I even know, which just makes me want to Right. So this further. is the cool thing. How much do we ability do we have that we don't know we have? Mm -hmm. Like uh, this, this guy that I do in my show on Reality's Edge with uh, Buddy Bolton. Um, I've done a show, some shows with him that we have our own YouTube channel called Realities that he likes PK. I just, he took my RV class. He came to Boulder and uh, he's interested in PK. So we decided to start a little show about this. And he likes to show people they can do PK. Uh, I've never exhibited any PK that I know about, but I bet if I tried and worked mm -hmm. at it, I bet I could do it too. Right. If I was really motivated, right? right? So so what else don't we know that we can do? And it's not just things that we would classify as paranormal or, you know, uh, psi phenomena. It's what other skills do we have? We all get so uh, we all get dumbed down by the type of economy we live in in some ways because we have jobs that require repetition, a lot of repetition. And that doesn't encourage creativity or creative thinking. Even jobs I've had, regular jobs in the past, you know, getting through graduate school and other things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, there was such an incredible level of repetition. Uh, it, it was sort of mind-numbing. I'm sure so many people go through this every day that have those types of jobs, right? Well, when you're done with those at the end of the day, you don't have a lot of energy right. to do yeah. it. But the thing is, right, and, and exploring these phenomena, we don't know where it's going to lead. It doesn't always have a an economic benefit immediately. Mm -hmm. So we often don't look at these things. But the thing is, a lot of people have abilities and skills they don't know they have. And it's, you should take some time every day or every week to find out what these are, because you could really be good at something you don't even know you're good at. And that's, it'd be a shame to go through your whole mm -hmm. life and not realizing you have certain abilities. And I think this RV ability is one thing, and there's others. So it's really a question, Laura, what this comes down to, I think, is, you know, Re living our full potential as people, not being a character, character, uh, cartoon caricature of what we really are. Right. Mm -hmm. And the system we're in, it has a lot of advantages and it has a lot of disadvantages. It has material advantages, which we're not as physically, you know, we don't have as much physical stress as we used to have. But the downside is it's very repetitive and it can cause a lot of uh, stress psychic stress so so we we don't really have the time left to explore and find out and again the net result is it's kind of easy to push aside the ufo et topic for maybe a century right and not just ets people like tesla people like tesla who invented some pretty cool stuff 
you, you've kind of forgotten about this guy that invented AC power. Every time you plug into the wall, Tesla, hello. Right. So <laughs> right. we don't even think about him. Fluorescent light bulbs, radio, all these things. So, yeah, he... So even in our own society, we can push aside things that aren't mainstream. That's the big danger, Laura, I see, of the way we live is we're pushing aside mainstream. But fortunately, we have new tools from the Internet, YouTube and things, podcasts that we can spread our message mm -hmm. like you do and like I do and many others where you can uh, devote resources and connect and do things that are outside of the mainstream. And this is what's going to save us is people that go outside of the mainstream and say, hey, UFOs are real. We want answers. <laughs> we don't want this swamp gas mm -hmm. up anymore. And we're at this point this week as we're recording this. That's exciting. That to me, that is exciting. We got to the point where Senator said, we don't want the swamp gas. Just leave that at home. Tell, tell us what's really going on. <laughs> tell us what's really going on. And, and my questions are, what about the Brookings report about how this would affect yeah. us? Aren't yeah. we, um, because you also know Stephen Bassett. I've had long conversations with right. him and he thinks yeah. that everybody will be happy if this information is disclosed. And I don't agree with him on that. I do think it, that there are people that will not be able to absorb this psychologically, the existence of this. But I thought that the Brookings plan worked and we're so used to seeing other intelligent species in movies and on television yes, yes, that yes. why would this scare us so much i have to agree with you i grew up with star trek mm -hmm. uh, when i started watching star trek as a kid we only had a black and white tv and we were only allowed an hour a day and it was star trek wow. <laughs> for the most yeah. part uh, I remember sitting there as a five-year-old watching Star Trek. So we've all been exposed to this. And, you know, those screenwriters from the beginning, Gene Roddenberry, mm -hmm. they were on to something. Mm -hmm. And it sunk into my little five-year-old brain, as it did to many other five-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. And then we had movies. We had Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. We've had new permutations of Star Trek, which are a lot of fun, by the mm -hmm. way, uh, to watch on uh, they're on, you know, a certain channel now. And uh, those, are, so it keeps going. We had Star Wars. Yeah. We had this in the popular culture now. And we have UFO conferences, mm -hmm. which I think will play a very important role in the future. Uh, conferences like Contact in the Desert. Mm -hmm. I'm being totally serious. Yeah. This is like a huge shock absorber for this information because people can go somewhere and they will hopefully will be doing these conferences in person again, mm -hmm. you know, at some point. Um, it's, it's, Zoom is good for many things, and I've used it for RV, and it's how we have to do things right now. But it's also good to meet in person just to be able to talk to yeah, people and hang I out. Yeah, I miss it. Right. Of course, these UFO conferences are critical because people – I've met people like this, Laura, mm -hmm. who've been at these conferences for the first time. I've been going to them well, just because I got curious since 1997. Mm -hmm. My first conference, I thought, what? A UFO conference? What goes on there? Does everyone wear Vulcaneers? <laughs> No, it was serious stuff, yeah. I believe, real witnesses, and it was much better than I expected, mm -hmm. and they've all always been better than I expected. You just find out some fascinating stuff. And I've met people who said, I was just curious. I just live nearby. I want to see what it's about. And I, I came to the conference. And so I think as things progress, we're told there could even be public congressional hearings about this report that's coming out soon, stuff like that. I think you're going to get more people are going to be curious. 
really curious. Now, I did go, as I mentioned many times on YouTube, to the Citizen Hearing at 2013 National Press Club run by your truly Stephen Bassett. Your Stephen Bassett, yeah. I thought it was a great job. Stephen wanted mass media coverage, and we didn't get it. He was disappointed. I thought the presentations were excellent, and it made its point. But C-SPAN did not turn their cameras on. They have cameras in the National Press Club. It only take, they can turn them on remotely. It's not a big deal. They turn them on all the time for other events, but they wouldn't cover UFOs. The Washington Post made fun of the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York Times, I sat next to a New York Times reporter. I said, what do you think? He goes, it's the best information I've ever come across, mm-hmm. and I can't get them to send anyone down from New York City to cover it. This is just in 2013. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. Mm-hmm. You had some of the best witnesses I've ever seen, some of them from Latin America. Incredible dogfight encounters with these tic-tac-like objects and stuff that no one's ever heard about. It's on YouTube now. Whoever runs Citizen Hearing put them on YouTube. It's free now. Okay. You can listen. This is some great testimony there. Uh, you know, all these it's really great people from the FAA, all sorts of great stuff. No one would, no one would cover it, though. I mean, I think it's changed. And I think it's changed now. I think it's changed. My question is about national security. We as United States citizens, I've heard so many people. I mean, I've been attending conferences to Conscious Life Expo, Contact in the Desert. I was at Alien Con, the very first Alien Con in yeah. 2016. And there's so many of our fellow Americans who have this righteous indignation about we deserve to know the truth. This is our tax dollars. Mm -hmm. You're hiding this from us. But what comes into my mind is what about national security? What about doing this to, to protect us, to keep, keep things from us for our protection? Because the United States military, uh, you, t- you talk about taking advantage of Tesla. I actually happen to be one of the people that think about Tesla every single day of my life. Okay. Uh, yes. And I think that we, just in general, as United States citizens, take for granted the power and might of the United States military who's there to protect us. I'm pro-military. I've had family members who have served. I have family members who are currently serving in the military. And I understand the secrecy. I understand the need for the secrecy. That is part of it. And so there are other countries out there who want to kill us, who want us dead. Yes. And we are being protected by our military. So Yes. They do a great job. The necessity to keep things from the public is for our own good. Maybe. Maybe. There's the other side of it, Laura. There's always the other side. There's always the other side. No, no, there's the other side of the – this is like a knife with two edges. Okay. okay? What you're talking about. Let me give you an example. Yeah. I've talked to former secretaries of defense exactly about this issue. It's something I think about all the time. Uh, there are adversaries to democracy. There are governments that don't like our lifestyle, uh, people that don't like our lifestyle. Our military does a great job every day of keeping us safe from these people. Mm -hmm. It's the bottom line. My dad was a D-Day. He landed in Omaha Beach. He risked his life to face uh, German machine guns. They told him, get out of the boat and scale the cliff. And he told me the boat behind him was totally destroyed by a mortar Mm -hmm. fire. Everyone was killed in the boat right behind him. 
So this is how close he came. So, yes, national security is important, but national security is more than just military. It's infrastructure and know-how. And Eisenhower knew this, which is why he created the Defense Education Act, the Defense Transportation Act, you know, all these things that Eisenhower did under the, the aegis of defense and security. Is It's not just military and military secrets. And this is something that Hal Putoff talked about in 2018. The danger is too much secrecy can lead to stifling of innovation. This is a serious topic. Stifling innovation. This is so serious, and you're not. You're going to hear more about this. I will just give you a very short example: cold fusion. Okay. When Fleischmann and Pond said they had discovered cold mm-hmm. fusion in '89, they were ridiculed. They were attacked. MIT said it's not real. We tried to replicate it. President Bush at the time, the younger, uh, the senior Bush, had a cold panel, cold fusion panel to evaluate it. They concluded there wasn't any evidence. And you couldn't get any funding for cold fusion for decades until recently again. But it was real all the time. And Russia and China have been working on it. At this point, they could be far ahead of where we're at in cold fusion technology. Tesla invented it. He wasn't the only one, but he discovered the same sort of processes. It's the same sort of thing as Tesla was looking at. Now, the danger is that you can suppress innovation, scientific innovation, and you can suppress scientific innovation like cold fusion. You can suppress it by not allowing people to talk about things they need to talk about. And what Hal told us at, in 2018 mm-hmm. was what he called the stovepiping effect, where people don't talk to each other within these government programs uh, to our detriment, because there's not enough people in any one special access program to know everything, okay. but you can't talk to anyone outside it. So you won't make any progress. You'll get to a point where you can't figure something out and there's no one to talk to. And science is based on conversation and data and, you know, looking at different mm-hmm. ideas. And so if we go too far in the direction of national, formal national security with the UFO topic, we will lose out in terms of science innovation. And that we could have what Hal called a Sputnik moment. Right, right. Where right. all of a sudden another country has surpassed mm-hmm. us. Now, Hal gave us some pretty specific examples. He said in the 50s, the Soviet Union was ahead of us in microelectronics, which is why they were able to get satellites up. Mm, like okay. that. I mean, communicate with them and so forth, right? Mm. And satellite technology. But they fell behind because their own system, their, the Soviet government was so paranoid they would fire scientists, put them in prison, okay. Siberia. Right. And you ended up with the US being the leader in microelectronics. And semiconductors and all this. Mm-hmm. And back then it was vacuum tubes. Eventually it became semiconductors. Uh, because their own government destroyed their science ability. So you can go in the direction of too much secrecy. It's, it's a fine balancing act. Yes, you can't give all of your sensor capabilities. This is, by the way, the main issue with UFOs, we're told. It isn't the UFOs themselves. They don't want to reveal the sensor capabilities that are picking up the UFOs because it would show a lot of detail. And you don't want your adversaries to know how good your satellites are and your sensor systems and your radars and all these systems, right? So uh, so that is one reason that the information has been withheld. But if we go too far in that direction, we won't be inspiring the little kids. Like I was inspired by Star Trek mm-hmm. to be interested in these. So if you're not inspiring the little kids out there with, you know, 
new ideas, you're going to lose out a generation of engineers and scientists. I mean, a lot of people that work at NASA say they were inspired by Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And it was people at NASA who got Star Trek going again. Do you realize that, that they were going to cancel it for good? And the reason we had this new season uh, of Star Trek, the one that's still going, that there's another season coming, Star Trek, uh, whatever it was called, the most recent one. Uh, you had a lot of people from NASA put together some money. You said, wait a minute, as kids, this is what inspired us. We have mm-hmm. to keep Star Trek going. Yeah, so so the danger on the other side is you could have too much classification. Even Bill Clinton, if you saw John Podesta has been interviewed recently this week, he said he was always in favor of declassification, where it can be done safely. Because you don't want to impede science progress. Science has to function on an open source basis. Podesta was in favor of it or Clinton was in favor of it? Both, okay. both. And that's why they worked together and Podesta was interviewed about this forthcoming UAP UFO report. And he said, I tried to do this when I was working with the Clintons mm-hmm. and uh, he was Obama's advisor for a while. He, was, he said, I'm in favor of declassification. There's too much, there's this feeling there's too much classification. Classification just begets more classification. Okay. It's very hard to reverse classification of information, and it can be a detriment to national security if there's too much classification. Okay, okay. And my other question is, why does it fall on the United States? Why does UFO disclosure, the disclosure that we're being visited by, I don't even want to call it extraterrestrial because I don't know. But why does that fall in the United States? Why isn't China disclosing the existence? Why isn't Japan or Germany? Why does it fall into the United States? And and the United States is keeping quiet about it. Why is everybody else keeping quiet about it too? They're not keeping quiet about it. When I was in Japan, I was told they were going to open a UFO museum. And they were told by the U.S. not to do it. So they turned it into a space museum instead. They were actually going to have a crash saucer there. Uh, this is who I told really? by people in Japan. Yeah. Uh, China has UFO. You can get a UFO researcher's license in Japan, in, J- in China. Do you realize that there's a, you have to take a test to be a UFO Okay, re- but there's, uh, there's this is still not, as Stephen Bassett would call it, disclosure. Well, they, a lot of these countries do not want to tick the U.S. off. They, there's, the U.S. gives aid to a lot of these countries. These Latin American countries were at the citizen hearing. Mm-hmm. They have had their own disclosure, but it has to be reported by the media here. The, uh, one of the countries in Latin America, the military said, we go into the schools and we talk about UFOs to the kids and we tell them they're not a threat and they're not going to hurt you. We don't know what they are, but we don't. There's no evidence there. Okay, harmful. so That's th- what, those are maybe. So they do it. Yeah, in in the countries that we're friendly with. But what about the countries we're yeah. not friendly with? They're not coming out with full disclosure either. Well, it's going back to what you're saying before about national security. Nobody totally wants to give away to the other guy what they know. Okay. But hopefully, we'll be able to find uh, some level of. Uh, common ground with Russia and China where we can all agree, look, this is in all our interest to understand who these visitors are, whether they're coming from the deep seas or from outer space. I worked at a research institute founded by Soviet Union and the US by Nixon and Brezhnev. I worked at one of these in 1989 called the YASA in Vienna. During the depths of the Cold War, Russia, the Soviet Union and the United States came together and said, look, there's gotta be something we can work on, right? That you know, even though 
formally were adversaries, even though the Soviet Union were not adversaries with the U.S. during World War II. We were allies. Remember, this this can flip around yeah, pretty quickly. Right. It's situational. But there was a research institute. And they said, what can we – Nixon and Brezhnev during one of their summits said, what can we work on together so we can work on something so we're not just fighting each other? And they, they came up with climate, climate change mm -hmm. back in the 70s, and they created EASA. And I worked there uh, with – scientists from East Germany and Soviet Union back then. The Cold War was still going in 89, if you remember. Mm -hmm. uh, there was short-lived after that. East Germany fell apart a couple of months mm -hmm. later. You could see it coming. But, uh, by the way, a lot faster than you'd think. But there are things that even adversaries can agree upon to work together. And there, you can find interviews with Soviet cosmonauts and military. I just watched one this week. Uh, it was from an Arabic channel where a Soviet, uh, former Soviet general or high-ranking person said, we've seen these objects all the time. He gave many examples of submarines and things that have happened. So they've talked about it. And I think the Chinese have talked about it, but it's really up to our media to pull the information in and to rebroadcast mm -hmm. it. It won't. They mentioned it at citizen hearing, but you didn't get any coverage. So I think, Laura, look, there's a couple of reasons. The, our media has not done a good job of covering this topic. The New York Times didn't cover the Phoenix Lights until three months later. Nowadays, they probably covered a lot of that. So there's that part of it. But look, the U.S. is the country that claims to be the big democracy on the planet, democratic republic. We're an open society. And I think other countries look to us for leadership just like they've done in the past. And we're the ones that if we go forward – these other countries won't feel afraid to do it, and we should find some way to work with our adversaries, at least to its all our advantage to say what – because there's obviously a technological component to mm -hmm. this, and every side wants to get it. And it's – yes, it's highly classified. Laura, I spoke to people in the U.S. who've handled the wreckage. Yeah. I've spoke to these people. They will not come forward. I've made videos about this. I will not release their name until they tell me they're comfortable, and so far they're not comfortable talking about it. They've seen the wreckage. It has big implications in many ways, but we can't, we're, we can't just let the military objectives determine everything. We're, we've never been that type of society, mm -hmm. and societies fall from the inside. Mm -hmm. we, we have to make mm -hmm. sure our knowledge is strong. We can't let these military considerations totally shut down our discussions, and they haven't. This is why we have UFO conferences that have never been told to stop doing what they do. All good points. Appreciate yeah. you sharing. Yes. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. As we wrap up, I would like for you to tell us about your YouTube channels, because just like with your websites and your blogs, which I will have links to all of them in the show notes for this episode, which will be episode Q21 on speakingofyoung.com. So yeah, tell us what you have going on right now as far as your YouTube channels and your blogs and your courses. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, First of all, thanks for doing again for doing this interview. You're a great interviewer. You've done a lot of research, obviously, on your guests, which doesn't always happen. Well, <laughs> so I, thank I, you. I love the topic. It's so exciting to me. It was great having you in the RV class. And I'm, I'm really – I appreciate that you've kind of stayed in touch with all these topics all the way to come around to – yeah, to come Talk to me again 20 years later. The photo, you know, the photo that you take at the end, I'm sure you do this with all of your classes. 
I have that photo. I must have scanned it because I have it in my computer and I posted it in my Instagram stories. So I'm there with you and Ron Russell. Yeah. Yes, Ron. We didn't talk about crop circles, which Ron introduced me to, but it doesn't matter. Uh, We will get back to these topics another time. It's all the same thing. This is what people need to remember. These are not separate topics. It, and I'll tell you, I mentioned cold fusion a few minutes mm-hmm. ago. This is going to become really big because okay. I am spending a lot of time every week uh, working with researchers and listening to their uh, broadcasts about this. Um, it's been real the whole time. There is 100 years of data. It's like mm-hmm. another forgotten part of history, <laughs> kind of like UFOs. Yeah. Uh, some people may have not wanted to be true, but it was true. Everyone's gotten the same results for 100 years in all these cold. I, I've seen this at SSA meetings when people from Italy have said we reproduced it. The top people in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned why people we don't hear about this. I don't know. It should have been a front headline news that the Italian researchers reproduced cold fusion. They said it was difficult to understand. It's finicky, but it's real. There are people working on this right now, and they are going to figure it out. And this is such a powerful form of energy. It's going to have large scale. It's a natural form of energy. It's plants are already doing it. You're already doing it. I do. Everyone's doing a little bit of call. I'll tell you, you are producing these little micro ball lightnings all the time, Mm -hmm. just tiny amounts. But if you can make it in a sustained way, in a bigger way, Mm -hmm. you could create new power sources and alchemy and all sorts Mm -hmm. of things that we didn't think were true. They're true. They're true. I'm telling you they're true. They are true. And thank goodness for, you know, citizen, I think what Steve Bassett calls them, citizen researchers, right? What does he call them? Citizen Citizen scientists. Yeah. There are out there now, and there's more than ever because of YouTube and these different ways we can all connect. We can share results. It's so exciting. This isn't all coming from the government. And in fact, Laura, disclosure may not completely come from the U.S. Based on what I'm seeing, there's a lot of good science being done outside the U.S. I'm kind of a patriot. I'd like the best to be here in the U.S., but it's not the case right now. It's been held back uh, far too much, as we've talked about and others have talked about. And others are doing this open source now, and we could have another Sputnik moment. Mm. (laughs) It is possible based on all the research that I'm seeing. We've had people here do it, but it got classified away. They were told to stop publicizing it. But look, it's going to come out. Science, the truth always comes out in the end. You you couldn't hold back Galileo and his telescope forever. Eventually, Laura, everyone has a telescope and they can look and see, hey, there are shadows on the moon, which must mean it's a heliocentric. You get a heliocentric universe. We're not the center. Anyone can start doing this. So, yeah, thanks for asking. I'm looking at cold fusion right now. I'm looking at all the Bigfoot reports as another black swan ghost topic, not realizing how many people have actually encountered this creature Mm -hmm. in places I've lived out west Uh, frequently. I even went to a conference recently in Bailey, Colorado. I made a video about that on YouTube. I encountered people, told me where they've seen them repeatedly. So uh, they weren't joking. I had a lot. It was like the Black Swan Ghost thing, the book, but this was with Bigfoot. People don't talk right. about it. Well, I wonder why they don't talk about it. So this is what I've been doing recently on YouTube. Um, and your YouTube I, channel is Simeon Hine. Yeah, I used to call it Fractal Friend, but YouTube eventually said, well, why don't you just use your name? Uh, you, they said you could use your name and combine it with this channel. So I just said, okay, it's Simeon Hine, Fractal okay. Friend, either one. We'll find, you'll find my YouTube channel. I like to put up videos about just what we're talking about, Laura. Yeah. And just ask the questions. I don't have all the answers, but what we know from all of this, and this is what my channel and all my platforms about, there's a lot that's real out there that we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. 
for a variety of reasons. But we're coming to a time in society where people want to know the truth. It's really where the media seems to want to know the truth. Uh, it's all of a sudden UFOs are in the news again. And uh, so I have the YouTube channel. I have RV classes occasionally. Yeah, so tell us where people can and how people can take your RV classes online. Well, if you go to learnrv.org, I have my online classes where you can take any time, self-paced, just go through the videos on your own. I have live classes a couple times a year. We did, the last one we did was in June. Oh, we had a good time. That was fun. A Zoom class. And how do, how uh, do people join that? You go to learnrv.org okay. and you'll see a sign up for it. I think the last one you'll see was the June class. Uh, you know what's kind of cool about Zoom? The one advantage is you can have people from all time zones at the same time mm -hmm. in the class, which is kind of cool. You can have people who wouldn't normally fly that far, people from other countries taking your right. class at the same right, time. Right. It's kind of cool. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so I do them live. There are recorded classes. Um, and I'm even hoping to do some uh, sort of uh, Bigfoot type of expeditions research okay. in Colorado, simply because the witnesses I've talked to report RV type experiences before the Bigfoot encounter, psychokinesis, the kind of mm -hmm. same phenomenon again. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems to be that there's a creature out there that never forgot how to do RV, Laura or PK. Oh. We did. Somehow oh. there's other beings out there on the planet, not ETs. I'm talking right. indigenous life forms right. on the planet. It's a whole nother topic that still know how to do this. And that's why they can become invisible or get inside your head, mm. send you telepathic thoughts. It's real. It, it's real if it. everything I've read from these witnesses from about a year of research is real, then it's real, unless everyone made all this up. So the Bigfoot thing is important, too, just because there's another life form, non-ET life form, that has abilities that we could learn mm -hmm. from. Healing, abil healing. healing abilities through sound. I love sound as a guitarist. Well, there's creatures out there that know how to use sound for healing. I've talked to those witnesses, too. So anyway, there's a lot of cool things I'm you know, involved with that I enjoy that I'll be finding ways for other people to participate in. And I'll let people know about the next RV class. It'll be fun. We'll do it. I, you know, because contact in the desert conference was coming up, I didn't want to do any classes right at the mm -hmm. moment just because of time constraints, right. but we'll do some of those again in the fall. Yeah. I'd so. love to join in. Sure. Yeah. Great to have you again. And just as a way to, to refresh. Yes. Yes. Because just preparing to, to speak with you uh, again today, has reminded me of so many things I, I had actually forgotten about and where my true passion lies, which is right here. Yeah. So I thank you for that. Yeah, that's so, and that's the main thing, Laura, I want to remind yeah. people. It, these topics are all fun, but ultimately it's about you, really, not in the egocistic, selfish way. It's about what do you have to offer mm -hmm. the planet and yeah. everyone around you that you didn't even know you had, mm -hmm. right? That maybe people appreciated about you or something you didn't know you had. It. It's about tapping into everything we've got, just being complete. And, and that's what makes everything feel good, yes. right? Is when we're complete and using all of our skills and abilities and sharing it with other people and taking care of other people and other animals and not just acquiring stuff, but using what we've already got so much built into right. us, Laura, you know this, we got to tap into this. It doesn't cost anything. You've already got mm -hmm. it. And that's the things we need to be tapping into is these things we've already got that we haven't been using. That's what excites me, and that's what I'll be doing. And people can always check into my YouTube channel. Oh, by the way, Twitter. Yeah. I'm always on Twitter. Twitter's a lot of fun. I learn a lot from Twitter. People are always posting. It's a great network yeah. uh, of people out there. You can find your own people to follow. But there's tons of information 
right coming out right now about the UFO stuff on yes. Twitter. Real good documents. I'm amazed by Twitter. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's really good. Uh, I don't use it to share every little thing I'm doing. I use it to share information about yes. this. And that's what makes it fun. Mm-hmm. So that's another way you can find me on using my name, Simeon Hine, on Twitter. And YouTube and Twitter are the best ways to keep in touch with me. So. Okay, great. And as I mentioned, yep. I will have links to all of your social media and your websites and your YouTube channels in the show notes for this episode. So thank you so great. much. Thank you, Laura. Great talking again. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to a very special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Or, 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 or